welcome to the Temple of Blair, episode C, uh, with Takis Kinnis of Thrash Prog Metal Legends Realm. Uh, I'm speaking super quiet because it's in the middle of the night, and I was just insisting that this go out on uh, the 30th of October, because the 30th of October 2020 is the 30th anniversary of Realm's second and final album, Suicidity. And I think that's really, really, really important because they're an absolutely kick-ass band. So Takis himself was super, super accommodating in this recording. Technically, his rig was superior in that he recorded the session and sent it to me, and he had working audio. Uh, You'll notice in the first 20 minutes of this session, my mic just starts acting robotic and is acting really weird. It's a problem I think I've fixed now. But nonetheless, just be wary that even though it sounds completely shite in that time, it does get better for about 25 minutes in when I swap mics over. But yeah, please join me in celebrating this kick-ass band. And rest in peace, Paul Laganowski, who is the founding guitarist for Realm, who passed away in 2017. So I'm sure he would endorse my ringing in of this interview with Takas with a resounding one, two, fuck shit up. <laughs> Don't be ridiculous. So, first of all, thanks very much for, for giving me your time, especially at such short notice. Um, and happy anniversary to Suicidy. Well, thank you. Uh, I guess I wasn't even thinking about that, but it is. this is right around the time it came out. And uh, back in, uh, I think, the fall of 1990, we were hitting the road at this time. We were probably out on the West Coast or something. Uh, and I think at that point, we were touring with Annihilator and Reverend, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Pretty interesting. Yeah, this is, um 30th of October. So a week tomorrow is the anniversary. Oh, wow. You know, and I, yeah, I'm, I'm sitting here in my basement workshop and just a couple feet away from me here. Uh, I had an old box of Rome uh, flyers and posters and whatnot, and I got to the bottom of the box, and in the bottom of the box was a a LP still in the shrink wrap, original pressing, and I was like, "Holy cow!" <laughs> yeah, you know, and uh, the artwork on that one is, is beautiful. The the guy uh, who created it, uh, Petter Hedman, is a just a local musician friend of ours, and we just kind of pitched the idea of what the word meant, and he came back mm. with that as a physical piece of art. And um, it's actually a photograph of a physical piece of art, you know, and even the glass breaking was done on site in in the photographer's studio. It wasn't done beforehand. He's like, I have this piece of glass. Hopefully this works. Um, But we we look back on it very fondly, you know. (laughs) Yeah, cracking skulls. Yeah. yeah. Um, Where do I want to start? I'm going to, I want to, because this is all about Roadrunner and those kind of interactions, um, there's not going to be, I think the music of Realm is really well documented. Uh, he did a, an interview with Metal Sucks about 10 years ago, um, which is really good and really thorough. Um, I'm going to touch on some of those points that, sure. because you've had 10 years to reflect. Um, but I want to get, I want to get the signal boost out of the way because I think Realm, I don't think there's such thing as a band that's gone. It's the metals for life. And it, it's, it I think is. everyone should listen to those two albums because they're, they're shit up, mate. When I was, because I came across Realm in researching this, and it's very much like, what the, what the fuck? How is this not? This is encapsulates everything great about eighties metal, like in in two albums. It's it's that's how I'd sell it to someone anyway. Um, 
and it's really killer. So I'm going to get the stuff, the annoying stuff out of the way first, which is, sure. so you guys activated again? Well, I guess that's a really, uh, that's a tough question to answer. Because I guess I, technically, you know, if you say, hey, are you in a band? I would answer no. <laughs> you know, although the rest of the guys might answer yes. Um, I think Mark and I would probably be the ones to answer no, you know, the singer and I, because we're, we're, the, we're the two that kind of when Realm ended, we really didn't pursue music as a thing, you know. I was an academic at the time, you know, I was um, working on multiple degrees, and, and Mark moved away and uh, followed, you know, ironically, also a career path in IT, um, but we just kind of stayed away from it. All the other guys stayed pretty darn active. I think, you know, Paul perhaps kind of stayed away from it too, but um, would we say that we're active I suppose because we have shows that we're supposed to play. So I guess we're a band, <laughs> um, but you know, it's like, are we actively rehearsing and uh, getting together? It was kind of hard when people live, you know, hundreds or thousands of miles away. I do have two of the guys that live here in town in Milwaukee. Um, so I guess, sure. Let's say we're a band uh, because if we do play over in Europe, we will need to rehearse. <laughs> and unfortunately yeah, yeah. we weren't wise and we didn't write riffs that were easy. We wrote very complicated, nuanced filled uh, music that requires a significant amount of uh, rehearsal, even though we, you know, wrote it just to kind of come up to fluff to pay, you know, to play it because it's just physically challenging music. Uh, it really floored me when I had to relearn it. Yeah. And then more importantly, teach it to somebody else to play. Right. Uh, like, holy cow, how did that go? <laughs> you know, and then I would have to put the headphones on and figure out, okay, I played this, Paul played that. And that, that was the irony, too. We never played the same guitar parts, even though it sounds like it at yeah. times. Um, but that was a conscious effort. It's, you, know, thing, you guys, well, age hasn't slowed you down one bit because I saw some footage of that, um, what is it, the Wisconsin Area Music Industry Hall of Fame, that show. And it was like, this is fucking, this is great. It's good to see everyone was just into it. You know what I mean? It was it was yeah, poignant for me as someone who was entering the 30s to go, all oh, right, it's nice to know that in you know, X amount of years, I'll still be, I'll still be headbanging and there's nothing good, nothing's going to physically restrain me from doing such a thing. Well, you know, that, so, that is the thing, you know, because uh, <laughs> it does get to your neck after a while, you know, and, and I know, um, you know, I think of some of my friends who used to just kind of have, um, you know, the whole headbanging thing going on and, you know, how many of them are not alive right now? I mean, that's a whole separate story. So um, I'm, I feel fortunate to still be here and to be able to do it. You know, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, when I go to gigs now, um, I do stretches. I do a bit of yoga before I go to gig um, because it means I can headbang and then I don't have a bang over the next day and I feel like, okay, so that's my <laughs> advice. Well, we always used to think that you had to practice the headbanging part of it, even during rehearsal. So, you know, we would have rehearsal and we would be just full at it because that way you're ready for the stage, right? <laughs> you don't you do not do it when you get to the stage. You do it because you must. <laughs> it's a, you know, compulsion yeah, yeah. or whatever. You know? So again, to, to um, bands being active, bands sort of um, coming back from earlier days, First thing, first thing I've noticed is when I'm researching all these old Roadrunner bands, it's really interesting to see years active, 85 to 88, and the reunion show in 90 and 95, and then all of them for some reason have 2017 to present active. And I, I don't know what it is. I think it may be because they're coming towards like the twilight years of their conventional careers and they're realizing, oh, you know what, there was never any fucking money in this game. We just did it because we like to do it, and everyone's still friends and they just crack on and do it. And I think that's, that's good to know as well. 
do you think that was something that informed the decision to, you know, do those reunited shows? Well, it was kind of, I think a combination of things. I think that is certainly an aspect, you know, cause I, I look at the way that I live my life and I, you know, my wife and I are, are huge music fans, you know, um, one of the reasons we hit it off in the first place, you know, um, and one of our favorite things to do, and it doesn't really matter even the form of music that it is, is to go out and see live music. And now so, since the pandemic, for example, we haven't, uh, you know, mm-hmm. I think maybe we've seen, well, I don't think we've seen any live music, you know, since probably late February. This And and fortunately, the last thing I got to see was Opeth in New York City. You know, we actually traveled all the way to see the show because we missed it when they were around here. Uh, so we said, Hey, you know what? Let's just drive to New York. What the heck? Let's go see the show. Two weeks later, everything's like locking down. (laughs) Um, and where were we ground zero in New York city where the pandemic is, you know, like really taken off in the U S. Um, but yeah, I think you're, you're absolutely right. There's, there's this aspect where, um, I think a lot of us are still able to do it. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, like Mike and Steve from the band are, are very active in, in several musical projects. And so they're like razor sharp on their plane. They're just, you know, I'm going to say they're better than they've ever been, uh, you know. And, you know, I really don't play the guitar that much. I actually have one in my lap here. You can't see it because Zoom is kind of filtering it. Um, <laughs> what my students don't know is when I teach through Zoom, I often have a guitar on my lap because it's kind of like a, like, almost like a security blanket. So I can just like play a riff and, and get back to normal. Um but yeah, you know, the thing that really kind of um, made it kind of strange for us and really triggered it, frankly, was the passing of Paul Leganowski, who was, uh, along with me, uh, one of the founding members of the band and a dear, dear friend. Um, and it hit us really, really hard because he uh, announced to us that he had pancreatic cancer. Um, God, it was a little over two years ago, you know, and um, and then it was like, Oh my God, (laughs) you know, this is horrible. And it was a very short window of time that he went from like being himself to he couldn't see anybody because he was so medicated to being full of tubes and poof, gone, you know, and barely a chance to even talk to him. Mm. Uh, It really hit us all hard. I mean, if we had like time to kind of connect more, you know, um, I don't know, you know, I get, I get pretty emotional just thinking about it. And, um, because of that, we got together at his, you know, I guess, uh, life celebration, if you want to call it that. So instead of having like a, a funeral sure. in a funeral home, um, we found this little corner pub basically in Milwaukee, uh, old Polish polka bar, you know, where people would sit there and play their concertinas <laughs> and their accordions. Um, and we thought it was a perfect place for him because he was, he was Polish by nature. He, he loved to drink beer and hang out at little corner places just like that. And uh, unrehearsed, we got up and we played a few songs. And um, I mean, it was pretty evident, you know, it's like, holy cow, I didn't even you know, really practice this stuff. You didn't either. We all got together, boom, and it sounded great. <laughs> you know, I mean, really with, with a minimal um, effort. So we're like, hey, there's still something here. You know, uh, all these years later, uh, there's some sort of uh, intangible. And this happens in music, right? And I can see in the background you play also. And you can sit down with a group of people and uh, you can play with some musicians and nothing clicks. Right. And then you get with certain people Mm. and the magic's there. And, you know, Paul had that, um, that magic because he, he um, just brought something special to the table and, and without him, I'll be real frank. I don't think it can ever really be realm without him, uh, you know, because 
children. We've swapped members, but uh, Paul and I were the constants right from the beginning um, and wrote all the music pretty much, you know. Um, but yeah, that brought us kind of that, that impetus to that we can possibly do it. We didn't have any plans after that memorial to go out and play. We just um, got a call one day from the Wisconsin music industry saying, hey, we want to put you in our Hall of Fame. We're like, what? Okay. And like, hey, by the way, do you want to play at the award show? All right, we can, obviously we can pull off a couple of songs. So sure, why not? Uh, and then the guy's like, well, I'm also a promoter and we could set up a concert the night before. <laughs> and we're like, all right, well, that means I have to learn more than one or two songs. Uh, okay, l- fine. You know, so we, we um, had plenty of time to prepare for it. So we had, a, you know, I want to say six, seven, eight months to prepare. Um, we found somebody to fill Paul's shoes. At first, I had this, like, crazy thought that I would, we would play three-piece. And if you ever listen to realm music and, you know, put the headphones on and hear the two guitars doing their different things, it's just impossible, you know. Um, no, no harmonizer pedal can pull that stuff off, you know. Um, no way. <laughs> yeah, not at all. And then, you know, then there's the personality that goes behind it, too. And that was a little bit of a conundrum as well. So, because um, Paul brought, I mean, it wasn't the skill of what he played. It was the personality behind what he played. And I think that's so, true of a lot of the bands that you're probably going to interview in this process, is you'll see there's tons of musicians out there. There's a million guitar players that can play better than me, but it's the chemistry. It's the feeling. It's the impetus. I don't know what it, you know, some magic spark or something that makes it all happen. Um, I feel fortunate totally. to have been part of it really. Well, it seems like when I say the, the telling of the roadrunner story is becoming to me, because I came into roadrunner in 2005 with trivium, which is a metal core band. So it was way past, the conventional time um, for either yourself or, or for what people might identify a roadrunner to be. But the example that Paul there is, it's critical to gather the information because no one else has. And guess what? It's fleeting. I, I think that I think it's pretty amazing what you're doing. And I think, uh, you know, for, for, for us in the bands, you know, that you're, you know, especially the, you know, we're not a Sepultura or a typo negative. Um, but, you know, we didn't have that same kind of notoriety, but, you know, we were almost, you know, it's like almost, you know, that musicians always say that. Um, so we kind of appreciate the fact that we're remembered. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we're, we're honored. We're part of the canon of modern music. You know, it's kind of mm-hmm. the way I see it. You know, if you put a record out, at least back in that day, you know, you, you stepped up from like the club band to, you know, your real band, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So... Yeah. Yeah. So, um, obviously the, this is my last thing and then we'll jump into my actual question, which I did prepare. Um, in the course of, obviously you mentioned earlier that there's a geographical challenge to playing music for, for realm. And obviously there's an emotional aspect, which is going to forbid it from happening. Um, but obviously the digitization of everything has come on in the last, especially sort of five years when they created SSD cards, I think that's, that was the catalyst. Um, especially in the pandemic, you're seeing a lot of bands making music and, and making movements just from, you know, from remote locations. Is that not an option for you? Could you not ring up Mark and say, hey, man, can you, I've got this thing on Ableton. Can I just throw it your way and we'll see what happens? You know, um, it's funny that you say that because, you know, I have been kind of doing a little bit of work like that. So, like, our, our follow-up project to Realm, um, our drummer in that outfit uh, was remixing some of the tracks from the band called, like, Fear Chain. Uh, mm. 
Justin's our follow-up project. And we did a little bit of that, you know, where he would, he'd send me a mix and I would record a part over it and send it back. And, you know, I know it's completely possible and I, I certainly have the technical wherewithal to pull it off. <laughs> For me, it's more of an aspect of time, you know, cause I, I, totally. I, I, you know, I'm a busy working professional basically. You know, I, I um, chair the IT department where I, where at the school where I teach and, and mm-hmm. I'm, have a very heavy teaching load on top of it all. And then I have a, a wife and kid and family and a life, you know, and, this is not my my bread and butter. I, I just love to listen and play music, but um, yeah, yeah <laughs> I mean, you, you, get, you, get the, you get the picture. I mean, you know, <laughs> life like, life happens. You know, totally. I mean, uh, my my miss has been very very understanding, um, but I think also she's like I'm, I'm I'm giving her too much praise. She'll never see this, so it's fine. Um, <laughs> she, I think she knows that when I'm doing it, I spend I spend a lot of time trying to set these kind of things up and, and record as mu- this as much as I can because I'm, I'm an academic sort of like by my background as well but my background is in commercial law so it makes me very effective at reading and recording it fine I find so it takes a lot longer to get it right and she seems to understand that it's important to me that the story's told it doesn't matter what happens with it is it, it, if it dumps on this this shitty timeline software or in powerpoint and puts put somewhere in perpetuity uh, is that the word perpetuity perpetuity yeah yeah, um, yeah absolutely yeah no I, I agree with you because it, it really kind of uh it's the same thing as doing the recordings right so when we put those albums out it's a snapshot of a picture in time um and for me you know like when i listen to those records i can't help but think of like like the situations that were happening at that time while we were recording. Right. So that that's captured into the music because who, who we were as people, the emotions we were feeling, the relationships we had, you know, whatever issues or problems that that's evident emotionally in the music. When I listen to it, I can hear it, you know, others yeah. just go, hey, that's really killer. But I, I feel, you know, kind of through the music to the players that were like generating it and what they were going through. Um, and so for me, it's, it, I, I have that perspective on it, but I think you're right though, because it's kind of like a photograph, you know, it, somebody's got to chronicle it and I'm glad it's you, you know, I mean, somebody's doing it. Somebody's got to do it, man. This is why that, that point's so cool though, because at the moment in time, because I know the end of the, uh, of, uh, suicide was meant to bleed in to the third album when it was going to happen. So you're going to have a point in time and interlinking yeah. thing and another point in time. And I think that's so cool. That's like tool level. Um, architecture around music. I think that's really badass. Yeah, and, and now, see, I have the benefit of having the guitar in my lap, right? And so, I don't know if you can pick that up or not, but yeah, yeah. Okay. I could dial in a clean sound here. Um, <laughs> maybe I won't even bother, just turn, turn the volume down, but there's a little riff at the end of there where it goes... <laughs> Anyhow, it's just like a you know like a little painting of some chords that come in at the end out of the explosion, and you know we, the the truth is we never finished writing it mm-hmm. because the band broke up before we finished yeah. writing it. But the impetus was that that's going to be the beginning of the next record, and it would kind of like flow into this whole concept or whatever, yeah, um, yeah. whatever <laughs> you know. I mean, <laughs> you know, we were trying to be all clever back then, but um, you know, we thought a lot about the stuff when we recorded it. You know, we put a mm-hmm. lot. Um, maybe a lot more into it than we even should have. You know, we, yeah. we spent a lot of time recording. We had the luxury when we recorded that second album of having um, the studio to ourselves. You know, we usually, you know, like the first album was like, um, I think one week of tracking and like maybe 10 days of mixing, you know, 
literally working like 18, 20 hour days with hardly any sleep because, you know, the studio time was super expensive back then. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but get to the second record and we had the studio locked up for like three, four months. We go there anytime we want and do whatever we want. So we took our time. You know? Yep. Yep. I've got a question on exactly that point later on. Okay. What have I got? I've got 12 questions. Um, and I want to be able to jog it along if I need to or whatever. Well, I don't teach for another two and a half hours. So Perfect. Okay, hey, I want to take as long time. as you need, as long as you need, I'm good. I appreciate it, man. All right. Uh, uh, we've gone on to okay. So what's this is a, another slightly non-runner link, but I, I keep finding information about a link to Beatallica, but without anything concrete. Um, what's that about? Is uh, you guys play? Are you guys also in Beatallica as well? Well, uh, let's yeah, let's talk about that one. So Beatallica is a kind of a, a, a I don't know what you call it a mashup, and they call themselves a bashup band, right? Cool. Because they're they're a little bit different than a mashup. Uh, mm-hmm. But they're just some local friends of ours that uh, put this thing, project together as a joke, basically, at this like, local event that we have every year called Spoof Fest, where cool. local musicians will imitate other artists. And one time, maybe 20 years ago, maybe something like that, they uh, imitated the, the Beatles playing in Metallica style, right? So like, if you could take the Beatles doing whatever in... Um, long story short, you know, they got a lot of attention from it, including a lot of trouble from it. Uh, but Metallica actually ran to their aid uh, and kind of stood behind them a little bit and said, hey, no, 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 these guys are cool. They're okay. Let's work it out. Um, and, you know, they've, they've gotten pretty popular. And for a very short stint, I played with them because uh, they, they lost their guitar player. They were doing a tour. And I think I did all of two rehearsals. <laughs> and then we hit the road and, and played for a few weeks. Uh, and that was about all I did with them. You know, just played a few shows. Okay. Um, it wasn't really kind of the right scene for me. I wasn't, you know, I, I was not ready to be a touring musician at that point. I was in the midst of raising young children. Mm-hmm. Uh, but currently, uh, our old bass player, Steve Post, is now their bass player. And, um, you know, they're not touring right now, obviously, but they are playing a few shows here and there, and they are recording. Um, and so they're, they're just close friends of ours. Um I think there was maybe, I don't know. I, I like to think there was a little bit of an inspiration. We did the, the, the Beatles cover, you know, they yeah, maybe stole a little bit of that uh, idea or whatever, but um, yeah. So, cool. Hey, <laughs> so, yeah, Steve is currently, currently their bass player. Yeah. I remember the press cycle around that when um, Metallica came to, to, to the raid, but I was, I was just curious cause there was a few, I think the only evidence I could find of Steve playing with him was on his Facebook, um, not the website or anything like that. So, um, yeah. He's a okay. fairly recent addition to that project. So, yeah. Cool. Hey, there's a lot of money in, in tribute um, projects. I know this is a mashup, but I work in the live industry with, with tribute bands quite a lot, and there's a lot of money there, more than people realize. Yeah, there is. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the only areas that's still paying well. <laughs> Weirdly. Yeah. Okay, right. Let's do, finally, Roadrunner stuff. <laughs> All right, let's do it. Okay, so Realm was signed to Roadrunner by uh, a gentleman called Monty Connor, and in fact, you have the the pleasure of being his first signing, which I'm assuming was at the start of 1988. Um, could you tell the story of how that happened, like how he caught wind of you, how he approached you, that kind of stuff, or how that that um, the meeting of minds occurred? Well, um, that's a that's a great question. It re- really, the way it happened is, you know, at that time, Realm was I, I would say in our demo you know phase you know we had uh, kind of moved on from our first uh, lineup that we did our very first demo perceptive incentive 
then released a, uh, a tape called Final Solution. Mm-hmm. Um, you think of it as a demo, but really it was, you know, self-released album. And, you know, we were part of the whole tape trading culture, you know, so we ourselves would buy fanzines and look stuff up and buy tapes mm-hmm. from people and then send them out. But we had this policy, like we'd get a fanzine and we would scour the whole thing for any address, record label, fanzine, rec- radio station, and send out our tapes. You know, we'd send out an eight by 10 and a cassette and please play our tape, you know? Mm. Um, and one of those, one of those people that received our tape was Monty Connor. He was DJing. Well, he, I think he was in school at the time um, and doing a college radio show. And uh, he was playing our tape on, on the radio show. And so we had a little bit of a connection there, but strangely before Monty contacted us, and this is, um, I, I don't think a lot of people know this. When we, we did our first cassette, which was called uh, perceptive incentive. And in fact, um, well, I could, you know, it's really, it's really kind of bad. I, I have a copy of it here, and I'm just, I'm going to hold it up because for many years, we, we created this, this cassette here, so if you can wow. see this, and we didn't know any better. We didn't realize this was a famous Ansel Adams photograph on the cover of it, and if you look <laughs> at it really, really, really closely, you know, um, I'm trying to get it up to the camera here, um, this is like, we typed this up on a typewriter, these cassette labels, mm. you know, um, and so this was like a self-done kind of thing. Um, and I didn't yeah, have a copy. desist from NASA. Yeah, well, I didn't, <laughs> well, from Ansel Adams. Um, <laughs> but this was like totally like a homemade kind of thing. And um, once again, we were sending the tapes out. Mm-hmm. And guess, one of the first phone calls we got back from sending a tape out was from Case, uh, from, from Roadrunner. What, uh, what we, year is this, by the way? Um, I guess, well, the tape came out, uh, I'm going to say late 85. Right, okay. Uh, okay. Well, you know, actually August of 85 is when we released it and okay. um, started sending it out. And one day we were at rehearsal and this is, you know, actually like maybe six, eight months after releasing it. And we had already moved on to new bass player and drummer at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, Case calls us and we're at rehearsal and we're like, nah, this isn't real. You know, uh, Somebody calling from Holland with a... No, this isn't real. But, but it was. It was it was Case calling us, and he says, I love your tape. I, I want to release that cassette just the way it is. And we were like, no, 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 no this is horrible. This is like a, a, you know, it wasn't a basement recording, but pretty close, you know? Yeah. Um, and we are like, no, we have much better songs. So let us, like, record another tape. We'll send you that. And then right. that was Final Solution. And that's the same material we were sending to Monty. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Ironically, you know, Monty because he was doing the, the metal show, I think he uh, started interning at Roadrunner in New York. And, 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 you know, he did a great job because I think what it takes to be in that position is to be in tune with what's happening yeah. in, in the field, right? And he totally was, you know, because he was on that underground level. He was on the level of the fans, right? He, he like us, you know, loved metal, you know? And, um, yeah, so, you know, it's strange, you know, with Monty, because um, we did have, like, a rapport going, you know, so, like, we didn't like instantly like, Hey, we love your stuff. We're signing you. It was more, it was more of a process. In fact, you know, we had, we were going through lineup changes. You know, we, we, from the first demo to the second demo, we switched drummer and bass player. And then it became very evident that it was not going to be optimal with the, with our original singer. We, we, we loved his voice. We loved what he did. Uh, but there were, you know, we had some issues there and, uh, decided to get Mark, um, in the band and 
then we had to record with Mark. And then mm-hmm. Monty was like, well, we, we want kind of proof that you guys are popular. <laughs> kind of like, yeah, it's, it's kind of funny to say it that way. <laughs> um, but I remember sending them a videotape. And uh, some of that, some of those video clips, I think, are, are out on YouTube of just mm-hmm. us playing a local show, right? Uh, you know, people actually like you and come to your shows. And I think when they saw, like, how crazy the crowd was, you know, mm-hmm. in those videos, they were like, oh, wow, okay people do like this stuff. All right, you know, we'll give it a shot. And and frankly, the selling point that he used, I think, to pitch it to the other people at Roadrunner was that Eleanor Rigby track, you know. Yeah. So we had done, we had demoed that in the studio and he played it and they, they loved it. Mm-hmm. And they saw a marketing angle, you know, and it was, it, it was a smart marketing angle. And I hate being known for doing a cover song, you know, because uh, really for us, that was a joke of a song. We played at the end of a set just to like blow people's minds. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because it. I can I can see your point as to why it's kind of a shame that's kind of a legacy, but at the same time, it captures the energy so well, it's so impeccably well. Like the first, as soon as you get into Endless War, three songs in, I was like, yeah, I get this. I, I get the link there. It's a really good gateway product. So again, as I said, from a marketing perspective, it's it is a killer move. It was, and, it, and you know, it opened a lot of doors for us. We uh, got on the radio. We mm-hmm. Got to got the tour around um you know I, I i always remember you know the and i think this is a story i probably tell too much but you know being on that first tour and you're we're driving into la you know we're kind of like mm-hmm. over to hills and you're seeing the city and we're, we're listening to knac you know the big like popular rock fm station in in la and our song comes on and we're like holy shit we're on the freaking radio in la you know <laughs> And unfortunately, only like 30 people showed up at our show, but still, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, in, in retrospect, I mean, just to have that happen and um, it was a lot of fun and it, it made people listen to us that would never listen to that genre of music. You know, I yeah, mean, yeah. if you put on the song Endless War as opposed to Eleanor Rigby, you'd probably turn it off five seconds later and go, eh, <laughs> you know, especially if you're I mean, not metal, you know. And I don't mean to keep blowing smoke up your ass, but it it, do, it really is that sound is like the best part of all like the eighties metal. It's not too rooted in one thing. And there's even like I mean, we talk about pro, um, prog metal a lot when speaking about realm. But I kind of like yeah, there's a slight leaning there, but there's a lot of what we'd call today as as crossover. There's a lot of crunchy, stompy bits in there as well. And I think that it, there's so much to grab onto. And it doesn't surprise me that a, a mainstream radio station would go let's let's give this a punt and see how it works. But um, yeah, did you? Yeah. Um, so you met Monty through that, and it was very the rapport was good. I mean, I think Monty. I don't think he's an A and R guy. He's a professional metalhead. His job is to sit down and be a metalhead, and depending on whose office he's sat down in, is it determines the output that you'll get from him. Um, did you keep? Was there an ongoing relationship there? Perhaps even after Rome uh, disbanded. Well, I'll tell you what. I, I you know after after the band disbanded, not really so much. Um, I, I have stayed in touch with him over the years uh we've reconnected a few times you know in the last decade or so mm. for various issues you know um and i wouldn't even call them issues um most recently because paul passed away and oh, yeah. um yeah that, yeah that's so that you know back to that again um but yeah we were we i would consider him a friend and i totally agree with you he and the reason he was effective at what he did frankly is because um, he was one of us. He was, it, it's like you, you go to a metal show and those people, the 10 people standing at, at the front of the stage, you know, he's one of those guys, you know, and, yeah. and um, he listened to the same stuff we did. We, we could have the same conversation say, Hey, did you check out that new, whatever, you know? 
And sometimes we would just talk on the phone just to do that, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I'm hearing it a lot that he, he does, even bands, you know, past, present and future, he, he seems to still have a rapport with them. And that's really nice. It, it does. I mean, those are, those are very fond memories. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I remember, you know, like we'd be working on material, for example, and it's like, hey, Matu, you got these cool new riffs, you know? And he's like, ah, oh, I wish I could hear it. You know, could you put it in the mail and send it to me? I'm like, hey, I got one better. So I'd take like the headphones off my Walkman and I'd put mm. you know, one of the earpieces right on the, mu- on the mouthpiece, you know, and I'd yeah. crank the riffs, uh, you know, and, you know, so whatever. You know, we, we used to do stuff like that, you know? So I, yeah. I would, you know, be on the phone with them quite a bit in the old, old days. Um, mm. And back then, you know, we didn't have the internet to files around. And so it's like, all right, damn it. I'll send that out to you. I'll, fe- I'll FedEx it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, 24 hours later, you got a cassette in the mail or whatever. Um, yeah. But yeah, we, we totally connected on that level. And, and you know, he, he started as a, a fan of ours. And, mm-hmm. you know, then the fact that he ended up at Roadrunner, the same place where we made our first, like, record label connection, mm-hmm. uh, was ironic, you know, totally ironic. Um, but, yeah, he was, you know, I think we're probably the same age, you know, right in the same age range. Um, I will tell you that Monty was bald even back then, <laughs> just just to pick on pick on him a little bit. But um, yeah, we, we totally hit it off. Um, you know, I mean, the record deal and all the business dealings aside, you know, I mean, uh, as people, you know, I thought we, you know, I consider us friends basically, and, and, sure, and I still sure. do. I still do. Do you uh, have any other relationships with anyone else at Roadrunner still? Um, I'm really I'm asking you to name drop here, but I, I was going to get up to. Did he ever get to know Case as well? Like again, he's an enigma, but there's got to be someone who knows him. Well, I'll tell you what. Aside from that very first phone call that we got, we never spoke to Case. You okay. Know, after that very first phone call, and um, we would always kind of through Monty or whoever else at the label, um, you know, and and probably one of the other people that that we were really close to there was Kathy Reed, who did. A, I think at the time she took over the radio promo stuff, and she would right. Okay kind of like publicist kind of activities. And uh, I know that she moved on to like relativity and a bunch of other labels in Southern California now. And I guess we really don't stay in touch with her either, but um, I would still consider her a friend, you know, um, you That's know we'll come across the episode. And, and I'll tell you what, you know, when, when we would get together, like if we were in New York or they would happen to come our way, you know, pretty rare, we would totally hang out, you know, go out and have a few, whatever, sure. you know, we would just kind of hang <laughs> you know, yeah. do yeah. what metalheads do, just hang out. So you mentioned earlier that uh, Case rang and said, um, "We want to put this tape out as it is." Now that's really interesting for me because um, the way that the he seems to structure his record deals in those days is very much like the Blumhouse. I call it the Blumhouse model. So you're familiar with the horror, the horror film studio Blumhouse did Paranormal Activity and stuff like that. Well, you know, I'll be real frank. No, I'm not, but... Okay. The, the idea I'll take is it on faith. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the explanation is pretty simple. The guy, what the guy does is he, he finances films for, you know, $25,000, $100,000, but he does loads in a year. Um, and if one hits and goes to cinema, then all the others are paid off. And I think that's right. what... That, I feel that's what Case's strategy was. And it's interesting you said he wanted to put it out as it was because he didn't have to pay for anything. However, I won't, I won't make assumptions. Um but getting onto the deal, the working model from what I can gather about a Roadrunner deal at the time would be you've got you for six or seven albums, all the IP, every intellectual property, all the publishing, everything is retained by Roadrunner forever. Um, and there's no guaranteed tour support. So if you go on tour, 
They'll probably support you, but they're not going to write it into a contract. So if you get brought into a shitty tour, like King, not King uh, Merciful Fate did for Man of War in England in 84, obviously it's not going to get any returns. Fuck it, they're not going to support it. Um, and the typical advance for the first record would be about $5,000. Is that reminiscent of the kind of deal that Realm got? In some aspects. Um, okay. You know, so we there were trade-offs in there and and that was one of one of oh. our sticking points so you know um okay I, I would i would say that we probably weren't really wise about how we handled the business affairs of it I and mean, we were we were young and eager and ready to roll you know mm-hmm. and 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 frankly you know it's like um you kind of have to you know uh, harvest your hay when when the sun is shining or whatever you know whatever the phrase is um <laughs> and we were we were you know i think in peak musical form right at the time we were getting signed you know and right. Um, you know, let me just put it like this, you know, we didn't get a lot of money. Mm-hmm. I, I, in fact, I don't even remember what the exact amount was, but we did retain some of the publishing. Uh, and then when we got, really? to, when we got to the second record, um, yeah, you, I'd have to actually look at the, the little imprints on there. And then it's also written into the contract too, that at some point it reverts all back to us. That's, uh, that's fascinating. Yeah, and that we and we that was one of the, one of the things I'd have to like pull out the, the documents, and I think we're mm-hmm. right at that point now where maybe those rights have already reverted back to us. And you know, like one thing I think you'll notice is a lot of the old Roadrunner bands you don't find them on on like Spotify oh. or some of those services because streaming wasn't an aspect of contracts back then. Uh, so yeah. that that completely, you know, I think from a legal standpoint, all sits in our own lap. You know, um, yeah. And so, okay, so, I mean, let's go back to the, the whole publishing and, and recording stuff. Um, we were maybe a little too eager to sign the contract and probably mm-hmm. took what I think is less money than what we should have used. And whatever money Roadrunner gave us, we ended up uh, sinking more of our own money in to finish the record. Okay. Because we felt, you know, hey, whatever, you know, this deal is, we want that first record to really kill, you know, we don't want to put out something that sounds like a demo um, because a lot of the demos I were, I was hearing, it's like, you know, that, that doesn't sound good or this doesn't sound good. Uh, we were fortunate that one of our really good friends, um, Jim Bartz, he uh, worked at a big studio here in Wisconsin and, and it's mm-hmm. the same studio that like recorded uh, the Guns N' Roses Appetite for Destruction, right. for example. So he worked at, you know, that facility. And what he had done for us with our, with our Final Solution demo, he had taken those tracks mm-hmm. and we recorded them at some like mishmash studios here in Wisconsin or in Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. And he took those tapes and he's like, okay, it's off hours. You know, it's like 3 a.m. Put the reels up on that on those big machines yeah, yeah. and, and yeah. struck the mix there, <laughs> which is why that tape sounded so good, I thought. Mm. Um but he, we brought him him in to do the project, and of course he wanted to be paid. Um, sure. Of course we didn't. <laughs> you know that, that's kind of the joke because we didn't have the money to pay him. We wanted to put all the money into the recording, uh, yep. and we actually uh, incurred a little bit of debt to do it. You know to finish the recording. So we I think we added uh, maybe eight thousand dollars of our own money uh, and borrowed money to get the record to sound the way it did. And that, mind you, that was only like two weeks of studio time. Would uh, Roderick or not? put the hand in the pocket for that? Well, you know, because we don't have the deal. It's like they, they gave us the check. We had already spent it and we're like, shit, man, mm-hmm. we, we still, <laughs> we still have stuff to record and mix and stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, can, you know, I'm, I'm, um, 
you know, I'm not really sure where to go from here. My daughter's like, you know, he got me from, from the other side of the room here is telling me I'm being too loud. So, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so we, we sunk some of our own money into it. Uh, but I think that's okay because I think the record really sounds good. Even all these years later, um, it really does. And we spent a lot of time, you know, on like, nuances of like you know the eqs and mm. the production aspects and uh which a lot of other bands at that level didn't do mm. um now i will say that when we did hit the road and go out on tour roadrunner was was more than happy to give us tour support so like we sure. you know they you know they paid our rent paid our bills so we could hit the road mm-hmm. um and so i mean really we ended up getting a lot more money out of them um you know so we is that what tour support is then? If I, if you were to be if you were to be completely um, uh, black and white about it, it is literally pay the cost at home. Because normally, I thought Roadrunner didn't get involved in the tours themselves. It was usually to a separate management company who would book the gigs, organize the finances around the gigs. But Roadrunner was merely a get the keep the lights on at home in almost a salary fashion while we're out promoting that the product which we're given to you. Is that kind of the arrangement? Yeah, that, that was totally it. And, and you know, and, and at that time, you know, um, some of us, you know, had, you know, full-time careers and families and homes, mm-hmm. you know, even at, at a pretty young age. And so for us to hit the road and, and kind of like take, take away that security of a steady paycheck, you know, we needed mm-hmm. something, you know, keep the lights on, you know, keep people fed. Right. Right. Uh, but we were able to tour and, and you know, when you, when you factor that money into the mix, we've got quite a bit more money out of them. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what the exact amount was, but of course it has to be recouped through sales. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and frankly, I don't know if they ever recouped it, <laughs> you know, because right, okay. it probably got up, you know, probably got up to like tens and th- tens of thousands of dollars. When you know, we're out on the road, the bills mount up pretty quickly. Um, some instances where the label would pay for something, but it actually just be added to the band's account and it would eventually come out of the sales as you kind of alluded to there. Yeah. Would your tour support be part of that as well then? So if, if, so you'd get the tour support, you'd be out for four weeks, say that. And then next year you might get, if the album didn't sell well, you might have got a bill for that four month, that four weeks of rent. You're not going to get yeah. a bill. <laughs> Good luck collecting on that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You're a bunch of like, long-haired musicians, right? Uh, uh, no, 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 they're not sending you a bill. You're just, they're just waiting to make the sales. You know, I think ultimately they, they probably did quite well. You know, I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, I don't, I mean, it's been a long time since I've seen a royalty statement. And frankly, I think the last time I saw a, a check was probably, you know, 25 years ago or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and, and I think now for most musicians, I, I think this is the weird thing is that that revenue stream dried up. Right. So the fact that we had even just a little bit of our publishing, we were getting a little bit of money coming in. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was Roadrunner's game. Right. So I think the reason that they would take the publishing is how are they going to recoup that tour support because you got to put, you know, the band in a bus or whatever and and put them on the road. Um, Money's got to come from somewhere. So there's 20 years from now, people still buying it. Okay, great. It's finally paid itself off. Yeah. Oh, well the the sales I'm sure probably dwindled after the first year. (laughs) That was really the reality of it. You know, you know, I I guess if I looked at, uh, looked at the terms of our contract, you know, frankly, I haven't looked at that document in 25, 30 years. I mean, there there hasn't been really much reason. And, and we always had this thing, you know, when we recorded our, our second record, we um, we did it at the studio of uh, Victor DiLorenzo, who was uh, the drummer of the Violent Femmes here in Milwaukee. Um, and we were talking to him about, you know, the contracts and stuff. And he's like, oh, man, you guys make sure you audit your label. Hire a lawyer and do an audit, right? Uh, he goes, 
every time the violent femmes did it, they were like shorting them hundreds of thousands of dollars in, in, in yeah, huge, huge money. I mean, of, of course they were much more impactful in the modern music scene than we were. Yeah. Um, but we never went to the point to, through the effort of doing that because, you know, the, the royalty statements that we were getting, we were getting checks, you know, mm. um, but it wasn't really kind of like the money we thought we would be getting out of it. Right. Because it, it sure. is really small percentages. And I, and I get it. There's a lot of costs involved. They're trying to recoup um, all the tour support they're giving us. So mm. until you recoup that, you don't see any money, you know, but we at least had the good fortune of getting the tour support. So in, in some oh, ways totally. we earned our royalties that way. Um, I, I thought I, it was interesting I, how there was a royalty split and it's just not something I've heard of before. And, and in your case, there was a, a publishing retention on your part. So, does that mean you could put your put Realm stuff on Spotify now? You know, I'm not going to answer that because legally I'm not really entirely sure. I really need to look at the contract. But my understanding of it is that that was just not part of that piece of paper. You know, sure. It wasn't even on the radar. It wasn't even thought of. From an IP perspective, I guess streaming could be regarded as performing rights. And performing rights is like the big term that would encompass a lot of different things. Um, so maybe it's there. I don't know. I don't know. Worth looking at if you can get a few pennies off that. Well, I, we've been, th- you know, we've been talking, and of course, I, I get hit up all the time by all these, like, you know, I would call them micro labels or whatever. Hey, can we re-release your stuff? Can we do, you know, you know? Mm. And I always kind of graciously make contact with people and um, can't let it float away, you know. Yeah, uh, sure. You know, because I'm not really sure where it sits legally. I, I do have some friends in the industry that have offered up. Um, they're lawyers to me basically. Hey, why don't you hire our, our guy? He'll go do the audit. He'll mm. make sure everything's all straight. And, you know, frankly, um, you know, it's a lot of work, you know, and, Oh God. Yeah. You know, and, and I'm, I'm not too worried about, you know, the financial legacy mm. of it, but I, I do think there were, you know, probably some shenanigans going on with numbers, you know, cause back then we didn't, you know, digitize everything. It was like, you know, it was all in the ledger. And mm. now I just look at, uh, you know, you can have one ledger that says one thing and a different ledger that says something else. Yeah. But the whole process of an audit is to really look at what, what was sold and what was returned. And, and totally. Yeah. And, and yeah. you know, I guess even to this day, you know, I, I still have somewhere in the back of my mind that we should do that audit and try to get our fair share. But, you know, what's it going to be, 50 bucks or something, you know? Mm. And I'm not worried about you know, that aspect of it, frankly. I mean, from the, the end of the day, it's, it's, I, I've learned to sympathize with labels a lot more as a result of this. I know it's not a very popular way to uh, approach it, but if you think about it, every penny you sink into a band is a massive gamble. Um, and if um, it seems like Case maybe structured it in, right, we've got a seven-hour album deal. Um, what we're going to do is for every $10 that is spent on Beneath the Remains or whatever, $1 is going to the seventh album, $1 going to the sixth album, one's going, and they're paying for themselves in that way to mitigate that risk. And I, I, I totally get that. It's, yeah. it's, it's a, a horrible game, but you, I guess you've got to safeguard yourself to do it. Well, and, and, and the era that we're talking about, I mean, there was a huge transition happening societally, right? So um, the, the internet really didn't happen for the public, at least until the mid-90s. Mm. But what was happening at the time, otherwise, I mean you know, we had cable television and things like MTV, right? And um, I don't know, people were changing the way they were listening to music. We were going yeah. from LPs and cassettes over to CDs. Um, the radio was certain to have less impact. And I mean, and now we're fully into this modern era where music is really, you know, I mean, who goes out and buys 
albums and CDs anymore. I mean, okay, I do, <laughs> but uh, you know, I mean, a lot of people don't. I mean, people just stream, mm. right? And I and I get it. You know, why spend money if you don't have to? If we had all these tools mm. back then, oh my God, what we would have done. At least yeah. that's the mindset. But at the same time, it puts everybody on the same playing field, and everybody can record, you know, in their basement studio and put it out on YouTube and. Mm have everybody ignore it <laughs> you know basically the, the beauty back then was you know at least if you got in a record label that had some distribution it gave you the validity at least to kind of be real you know um, yeah yeah this so. is a complete aside um but on monday i'm interviewing a guy called hell, hell ripper i say it's a guy called hell ripper it's a band called hell ripper but this is the thing it's a one-man project um and my entire sort of an, my entire line of questioning is is on that Anyone in the industry for the last 10, 15 years has said, you know, anyone with a computer can make a number one record. And they, see it, they speak about it with some confusion and a bit of, certainly not with reverence, it's good that we've got more music out there, but monetizing, monetizing it and, and, and making it into a product is a lot more difficult and there's a lot more weeds to go through. So my question to this guy is going to be, Peaceville Records, what value did they see in you as a one-man project who's who's made... Uh, all, all of your records by yourself in a basement because everything I'm hearing is that this is a massive gamble. What are they giving you and what, not, not money-wise, but what what are they offering you which Bandcamp isn't and what are you offering them which a more established legacy act who's been around since the 80s doesn't offer? A complete aside, but I, it's a dynamic that I don't understand because not, I wouldn't have thought anyone would have um, invested in a one-man project that wasn't like an industrial electronic one, a nine-inch nails type. But now I've got a black metal rock band who's being supported by not a mainstream label, but certainly a reputable um, indie label. Right. And we have some friends here in town that are on Peaceville, uh, Mortiskald, right? Right. They're, yep. They're, they're one of the Peaceville bands. And, you know, and, and here, here's kind of an interesting sideline. When Realm was done, I went and played with them for a while. I even did a little mm -hmm. bit of recording. Yeah. Uh, of course, death metal wasn't really kind of my, my thing. Uh, but, you know, they were friends, and, and it was mm -hmm. kind of a, a convenient, fun little thing to do at the time. Yeah. Um, but I've, I've kind of watched them kind of go through their thing, too. And, um, you know, they're back at it. So I, I think they're a completely active band now, recording albums and releasing and mm. touring and the whole bit. And, you know, I, I think that's fantastic, you know, because, uh, hey, if you're able to do it and you're willing to do it and you got the wherewithal, why not, you know? Oh, totally, totally. Okay. Okay, <laughs> I was looking down the list. I'm still at the top of the list. We're very good at, at going down rabbit holes. Um, That's okay. <laughs> yeah, so during the process of making Endless War, was Roadrunner involved? Did they give you notes? Did they give you guidance? Or did they just say, here's the cash, what little of it there was. We like what you're doing. Crack on. There was certainly, um, let's just say, uh, you know, it was pretty much send us the check and kind of trusted us. And I think the reason they did that is because they knew that we were working with the same producer and engineer that did our final solution tape. Right. Cool. And, and the thing that was kind of, you know, unique about that final solution tape is we did it so shoestring. And, and so, you know, kind of ramshackle. It's like we would play gigs, save up a little money, go record a little bit. And then, okay, well now we got money to record the, the solos. Now we got money to record the vocals. And, and so we pieced it together. Yeah. But having, you know, once again, Jim Bartz as an engineer producer really kind of raised the level. So, and, and they knew that from, from the demo tape. So they had a trust in Jim, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, trust in us. And 
um, they didn't really hear it until we were done, you know, because mm-hmm. you know, it went, it went so darn quick. Um, but they were elated with it, you know. I mean, they they really liked what we did. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, we you know we had like issues, you know. Of course, like when we got to like the mastering process back then, you know, we couldn't send our files around, you know, electronically. Mm-hmm. So we'd like they got the master tape, they'd run through the mastering process, then they'd package it up and send it back to us on cassette or, or vinyl. And then we'd listen to it mm-hmm. and go, no, 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 it leads a little bit more of this, you know? Yeah, sure. Right. Um, but you know, I think that at the time, like the mastering studios in New York, I think they had like one setting on their gear and just mm-hmm. like ran all the bands through that one setting. And it's like, this is what you get, buddy. Good luck. <laughs> you know? Um, and so, you know, we didn't even realize what the mastering process could do. So I think there was actually a little bit lost in the mastering process, you know. Um, oh, wow. And then when it was reissued and remastered, um, I think even more was lost, you know, because I think the modern ways that, you know, the modern way of mixing is you compress everything so much to get the levels so high mm-hmm. that the dynamic range is basically a couple of dB. And you so what you have is this oral picture that is complicated and crowded with mm-hmm. no breathing in it and that's not how music is music is dynamic and powerful there's swells and volume it's not all one volume um and i yeah, think I'm some gonna, of that is lost you know I'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna abandon the crowd who are gonna pressure you to reform realm and put out a third album i'm gonna join us start a new crowd you should get into production man because you when i've been reading around you as well and obviously I, what you're talking about there you clearly know your shit and it's time effective you don't have to quit your job with the remote setting. You well, you know, believe it or not, I have, I have done a little bit of that. In fact, uh, I'll say that one of the favorite projects that I worked on, because uh, I, I did, you know, what I would do is a sideline. So when I was in school and in Realm at the same time, so Realm was like a full-time thing, but I was still yeah. a student, you know, I was studying business and IT. Um, as a sideline, I would mix live sound. So there were a couple clubs in town and I would go run the board and mix people. Mm-hmm. And then I started working at a local studio Um and then I started doing projects on the side. So this local Milwaukee punk band called Motherfuckers, right? And if you've never heard of them, you need need to look them read, up. Read the name, definitely. Yeah, yeah they they are, um, and and I know I'm opinionated because I worked on the project, but I think they're the best punk or hardcore band ever. Mm-hmm. Period. They're just freaking amazing. Um, but I, I you know worked on projects like that. So if you listen to some of the recordings, we did this like in the basement on like really junky equipment, but we mm. took our time and, and mixed it all, you know, but yeah, I, sure. <laughs> <laughs> let's just, uh, let's just leave it there. Yeah. Part-time, part-time, Saturdays only. Yeah. And I, and I did, I did a bunch of recording, but you know, I mean, ultimately at the end, at the end of the day, you know, loving doing something and then buttering your bread with it is are two different yeah, yeah. things. And I mean, and you're an IT person and, and, you know, in IT, you can make a significant amount of money if you have skills and um, you know, Hey, I got bills to pay. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. The cover for endless war. Um, I've read that you hated it and I've heard the story of it. And I'm going to abridge it because I know it's been well recorded, but I've, I think I might possibly have an anecdote, which you might be aware of, maybe not of. So endless war is the horse. I think it's personally, I think it's, it's really, I think it's timeless. You could put that out today on a different band and it'd be killer. Um, you didn't like it on the basis that and I'm, I'm generalizing. You had a friend that had a great idea, a sketch um, idea that you wanted to be developed and put on to the Endless War cover. Right. Um, Runner effectively took that one. Yeah, that's great, lads. Got an artist to sketch up what ended up being 
cause of death. Or slowly re- we rot, sorry. Slowly yeah. rot for obituary. Right. Is that about the long and short of it? Yeah, it is the long and short of it. Uh, and actually, you know, the we were trying to think of like what would we want we knew we were going to call the the record endless war and we were mm-hmm. trying to think of, you know what what does that mean what does that look like and you know we were influenced by all the other metal bands so we were watching like the, the covers that they were putting out and you know our ideal record cover right for the first album and roadrunner said no by the way was to just have the realm logo mm-hmm. on a black with red kind of gold leaf logo and that would be it you know kind of like spinal oh. tap or something yeah, yeah, black, yeah. blacker than black or something um <laughs> But then, uh, you know, I had that conception, you know, like, hey, how about like just a body sitting in the street rotting or whatever? And my friend drew it up and it was kind of cartoony, right? Because it was it was really a mock up. It wasn't really the final piece. It was just like this yeah. is kind of what we're thinking. And Roadrunner was like, hell no, <laughs> because they, they really wanted to see a finished piece of art. Right. Yeah, sure. And then, boy, was I surprised, you know, when Obituary came up with that idea mm-hmm. uh, and had that on their cover. Um, I was really kind of a little floored. I was like, holy shit, they st- that's my freaking idea, you know. Yeah. Uh, not maybe the way I would have had it drawn up, but, um, yeah, that's that's just kind of how it went down. Now, they they kind of pushed the horse on us, and, and here's the thing with that. We didn't have really a lot of time to, like, refuse it or change it, mm. and we thought there was something better. But I, I do look at, at back at it, now, and I think you're right. It is kind of timeless. It doesn't have, like, the cartoony, cheesy... Uh, necessarily even like a metal kind of feel to it. It mm-hmm. just kind of has this like weird future shock kind of biomechanical yeah. um, in some ways really kind of did match up really well with the music because, you know, I, I always felt our music was intentionally maybe 10, 20, 30 years ahead of the curve. You know, we were mm-hmm. trying to think like way into the future and I look at, I'm, I'm looking at it on the other screen right now and I go, it's okay, so- it's a thing, you know. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. <laughs> so, from what I, from what I've been reading, so take this with a grain of salt. Sure. So, Sepultura is beneath the remains. Um, they initially uh, favoured the artist mock-up of that, not the horse. The what would eventually be, you know, your drawing, your mate's drawing. The artist mock-up of that. They wanted that from beneath the remains. And then Roadrunner took it from them and said, no, we're giving it to a bitchery. And they were pissed at that. So that drawing on that, at least impression of the drawing, has made the rounds, Wow, <laughs> it seems. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, interesting, interesting. Yeah. You don't have you're, you're, giving, you're giving an insight into, like, the inner workings of... <laughs> oh, it means I'm doing my job, mate. That's yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's, that's fantastic, you know. And it's, it's, so, you know, it's so strange, all, all the, the strange little connections like that. And when you, when you think about music as a whole and all the individual people, you know, and how we're all connected, you know, and, and really the truth of this is when you look at the metal world and you look at the people that have gone through the, the bands and the labels and the touring, there's, it's really actually a pretty small circle of people. It is. It, you know, and I mean, I can't say like, I know everybody, I'm, I wasn't really maybe overly social, but there's all these weird connections that kind of spill from one to the other. And uh, I find that fascinating. So, so in a way, <laughs> you know, I think it's kind of cool. I mean, yeah. and, and don't get me wrong, I, I love Sepultura, I love Obituary, I still listen mm-hmm. to the records, you know, I mean, they were yeah. certainly influential records, um, and the fact that we're somehow connected, even cooler, right? I mean, like, the fact of the matter is, what probably happened was, and I'm not, I wasn't trying to be contentious by sharing that, um, what oh, no. happened was, they, they got the sketch, went, this is a cool idea, they put it on the pile of cool ideas without knowing what it was in, intended for, 
and then it got developed and then passed around. That's probably what happened. It wasn't, I'm going to steal this idea and give it to other bands. Because just not ne- People don't sit in ivory towers and think like that. So that's probably what happened. But I thought yeah, it was just I, interesting. Yeah, I think it's a practicality thing. And, and you know, in, in retrospect, I think, you know, they pushed us away from our idea, but they were really, in essence, they were right, you know? I mean, yeah, totally. Yeah. I, I did, I, I, at the time, kind of took a little bit of offense to it. I'll be real, real frank. You know, I, yeah. I was like, holy cow, hey, th- you know, I have this idea and, you know, this is, you know, our music and I want to put my idea across. Mm. Um, but it, like, I, like I said, in retrospect, I, I'm proud of that. I think it's, it, it is a timeless piece of art uh, just on mm. its own. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you can put your stake in that as well. So, you know, that called the, um, slowly we, what we slowly, we rot. That's a tongue twister sometimes. Um, cover came from this head. I could be a bragging right. Well, you know, um, when I, when I look at, um, kind of like you know, just the idea of whole album covers and stuff, you know, one, you know, I, I look at, I'm going to share my screen here with you real quick. That's cool. If you don't mind. So your face is on there right now. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure if you're seeing yourself. Are you seeing yourself? Yes. Yeah, it, I'm not that offended by myself. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we had like, like this piece of art that was created for us. Um, That's awesome. This is, this is a cassette cover, right. Of the final right. solution demo. And, you know, I mean, this is kind of where we got some of the, some of the, I guess, some of the inspiration from, sorry. Um, oh, shoot. <laughs> you're watching me fumble on the screen here. But this was, uh, you know, when we were releasing our, our demos and we were getting them played on the local uh, college station here in Milwaukee uh, mm. from the School of Engineering, Milwaukee School of Engineering, WMSC. And one of our, our DJs there, Roland Stibby, uh, drew this up for us. You know, he just, hey, do you mind if I create some artwork? And he handed us this, and we're like, man, that is beautiful. And he even yeah, yeah. figured out that this would go on, on the little spine of the cassette, you know? Oh. But but, but you can see, you know, like if you think about the slowly re-rot cover, right? Yeah. Um, we're, you know, it, well, this isn't too far off from kind of that idea. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? So, I mean, it, it didn't come from, from nowhere. And, and we gave... Yeah, I think if I remember right, we kind of gave this idea to Roland and he kind of worked it, but it, I mean, it just kind of shows you that (laughs) if you want to give validity to the fact that, um, you know, I kind of came up with that thought. There you go. (laughs) Uh, So that, so that was that the one you submitted to Rodana then? Or was that just, the, is that the genesis of the idea that was eventually? No, that that's not the one that went to Roadrunner. I do somewhere, and it might be in that box with that that sealed album. Um, and, and my friend, his name was Joe Bagada, and we went Don't to open it together. Yeah, yeah. Keep, keep, he keep. he actually had had sketched it out, and he was one of these guys that was really prolific at creating um, artwork for people's flyers here in town, right. and. Um, he also borrowed cigarettes from me incessantly, so he felt like he kind of owed me like a drawing, so he did that drawing. And we were really hoping that he would do the artwork for the record because he had this very unique kind of like uh, sketchy kind of drawing style that we really liked. Yeah. Uh, and it's unfortunate it didn't work out, but um, in retrospect, I'm happy with it. So. Yeah. The idea was the reverse cover, so it was like just a lovely little bit of a castle on a sunny hill. Whoever was working Photoshop at the record label, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Real frankly, it's like, okay, there's some stock photo. Hey, let's throw this castle on here. This looks good. Yeah. I guess they only got realm, realm, realm. Sounds wizardy. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> Interesting. It must, must uh, be in a castle somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so with re- we're, cl- we're getting towards the end now. I promise sure. you. Um, with regards uh, suicidality, you mentioned earlier that the recovery process was more relaxed. Um, you had a whole house. It was you had jobs, you had family, well, you had all things, sorts of things going on. So you'd come in and do your bit, um, and that caused a bit of strife with Roadrunner. What kind of pressure were they trying to deploy? Why did they? Why were they in a rush? All right. Well, yeah. there's there's a good backstory on that because at the time, you know, so we we kind of went through our member changes, and then we also went through this. Uh, changes in management too. So, so we, when we started out, we didn't have like a manager or mm. anybody handling us. Uh, Paul and I would do all the booking. We would handle all the business affairs. Um, and then as we got closer and closer to, to working towards a record deal, we're like, you know what? The missing piece here is we need a manager, right? We need mm. somebody that knows the industry. And so we, we brought on uh, a guy in town uh, named uh, Eric Greif. And, Eric, uh, you know, he ended up going on to manage uh, bands like Death, for example, mm-hmm. probably one of his more notable things. I think he also helped Motley Crue get started, you know, et cetera. Um, and, you know, in retrospect, we probably never should have stopped working with Eric, honestly, because Eric, um, he was also one of us. I mean, he was, he was into the music, he, he was our age, you know, all that, that stuff. But for whatever reason, we weren't kind of happy with the way he was handling things. And so we fired him, right? And then we picked up uh, a different manager, a guy here in town uh, by the name of Tony Selig. And in in the circles around here, he was really important because he would promote like big concerts and like arena-sized concerts. Mm -hmm. And so we had all these connections and he was kind of a a character in his own right. Um, Mm -hmm. And he was, however, very abrasive. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't the kind of, that would try to work things out. He was like, no, 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 you guys got to do this. You know, <laughs> that kind of attitude. Right. Um, and when we were working on suicide, he's like, you guys, you guys are too good for this label. He, you know, got all into our heads. Right. Right? <laughs> so here we are with Roadrunner's money. And for the second record, we actually had a budget, you know, and, and I forget what it was. It was maybe like 20 grand or something, you know. Did, were you on a, was it a two album deal with Roadrunner? It wasn't the six or seven or was it? Actually it was, I think it was like seven or eight with an option after the first two. And so really right, what happened okay. is they signed us. We got to the, we got to the option and they said, no, <laughs> you know, got so they, they didn't continue on. But the way yeah, the deal was absolutely. struck is they had this like increasing scale of budget amounts that we would get as advances. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I think all told it, it, totaled up to a quarter million or a half million dollars after you got through all those records. Yeah. Now they, they pretty much knew that if you weren't selling on the first two records, we're not going to take the option anyhow. Yeah. So, which is the case. Um, but Tony, um, <clears throat> when we were recording suicide, we were striking rough mixes. He's man, this stuff sounds amazing. Uh, I'm going to start pitching it to some of my major label friends. Okay. So, okay. so we were taking rough mixes of the album mm. and shopping it. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, young bands don't do that. That's pretty uncool. Yeah. <laughs> You're already signed to a label, but you yeah. know, we, we kind of had stars in our eyes. We, we, we thought we were maybe better than we were or something. I don't know, but uh, we did get a nibble. So we got uh, Island records, which um, you know, was part of the Atlantic thing, right. Um, came out. They, they loved our stuff. They came out mm-hmm. to a couple of shows. In fact, uh, one in, in one circumstance, they're, they're like head A&R guy, and I forget what his name was, 
um, asked it, Hey, when are you guys playing a show? And I'm like, well, hey, man, we got nothing on the books. And so Tony had this like cockamamie idea. Let, let's just do a show on Wednesday. And we're like, what? Like three days. But yep. So we just like put a show together. The guy flew out. We charged no cover charge. You know, we just had just to do the show. Just, just for the guy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, he loved it. And, and, and we're like, all right, Hey, you guys are great. We're going to put you on tour with anthrax and all this, you know, totally building up our egos. And, and mm. so what happens, and this happens in the industry a lot, especially at that time is, uh, Atlantic got bought out. <laughs> and yeah. the first thing they do is they, they fire all their A&R people. Yeah. And so your biggest fan on Monday is out the dub. I went. Yeah. So yeah. here we are, like we're drafting contracts and then all of a sudden it's like, sorry guys, all gone. <laughs> and so we were right, right before the record came out, we were, we were on the verge of basically signing, signing with Island records, you know, a full blown mm. major label. And we felt, okay, man, here, here we go. You know? Yeah. Uh, and then it, you know, Roadrunner caught wind. Right. And, and so I, and I remember this, I had a conversation with Monty and he's like, man, why are you guys doing this? You know, basically. And, and so I, I was real, maybe a little too frank and honest with him. You know, I told him that what things we were unhappy about, you know, and mm-hmm. we felt like we deserved more money, more promo, you know, cause we were watching other bands like uh, here in Wisconsin, our, our, our friends uh, from uh, last crack, right. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, hour away from us up the road. Um, we were watching them. They were getting on MTV. They were, they had mm-hmm. video budgets, you know, they were going over to Europe to play shows all with label support. And we weren't getting that. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so we're like, Hey, we, we feel like we're being undersold or underrepresented or something. So that's why we did it, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, but then it fell apart, you know? And um, it also got to the point where the record, uh, we used up all their budget amount. We still wanted to like basically remix the rough mixes so what you hear on, of that record in some ways is kind of a rough mix because the mix was made while we were touring. Yeah, yeah. And you weren't there to put stuff I wasn't there. I was, not, I was not there, and uh, I think it suffered a little bit, particularly as a guitar player. I wanted the guitars to just be up a little louder. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So whatever. I mean, it is what it is. I still listen to that record and, and go, oh, my God, you know, if a couple little mix things were fixed, that would have been one of the most – amazing records ever and i i will tell you i am working on trying to digitize all those tracks at some point mm. and who knows maybe remix it someday but maybe not you know what man is it's the ai technology and mixing these days is crazy like for the podcast i get the raw recording and get a raw wav and i chuck it straight into fix my levels because when i'm listening on headphones i can't tell if anyone if if, if raw my co-host is the same level as me so i just throw it that and it balances it out Similarly, there's some software going around where, which isolates vocal tracks on analog recordings. Obviously, there's nothing truly analog anymore, but it it gets the the, the, the frequencies. It identifies a trend and it goes, all right, here's Aretha Franklin, so you can put Aretha Franklin on your samples. So it'd be cool if they could do that for guitars, and then you could at least isolate those bits and, and give them the, the kick they need. But. There, there are a lot of really cool pieces of uh, mastering software in particular right now. Yeah. You can really do some of that isolation. Uh, but in my mind, I, I mean, if the, the EQ and the levels aren't kind of right to start with. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and fra- real frankly, I think that whole mix could be fixed with just bumping up the guitars. Like, <laughs> you just make it a little more guitar heavy and that, yeah. that record would just rip your face off. And, and we, we did such a, um, a meticulous job of making sure the guitar tracks were uh, spot on, like, perfect all the way through. Yeah, yeah. 
and and then when it kind of gets buried in the mix, you get a little upset about it. But I try to look past that these days and and look at it as more of a a picture, you know, of what we were doing. And I think it succeeds in that capacity. So the thing about um, that particular story is I understood it was a two album deal. And I thought that was going to be a remarkable Mm -hmm. thing, but as you mentioned, it's the option. Um, So you arrived at a point where the option was up and you effectively misbehaved. Did they not offer to remedy any of your grievances or anything like that? It was, was the, the, the message of you not being picked up after the option was that driven by economics? Was it driven by the fact that you were shopping around, or was it? Because I kind of, if it was a two album deal, I'd completely understand if it was. Oh, one of our bands is shopping around. And it's like, well, of course, so they're not going to have a record deal once this one comes out. So right, yeah. but unfortunately, we were we were shopping around before the record came out. You know, so I, so I mean, it was a little bit uncool on our part. Uh, sure, but at the same time, you know, really, I think Roadrunner would would have stood to benefit. You know, because if we would have gotten picked up, they would have need whatever labels picking us up would have to buy out that contract. Right. Yeah, totally. Um, and so the, I mean, they wouldn't, they wouldn't have lost out. Um, it's just a matter of like, do you think this music will sell? And there was a kind of an upswelling happening at that time. And so what I was seeing at shows is we would play with all these heavy bands and mm. death metal was on the rise. Right. So here we are playing shows with people going, right. <laughs> and yeah, here's yeah, Mark, yeah. you know, sky high with his vibrato and stuff. And, and, it's kind of like a complete juxtaposition of styles. Um, <clears throat> and I, I have this really fond memory. Like we were touring with um, Testament and Raven and we were like the opening act for that. And we did kind of like this Midwest jaunt here. And we played at a place here in Milwaukee, right? The tour came through Milwaukee and Mark is singing and he's hitting these high notes and people are pelting him with pennies or something they're throwing pennies at him from the crowd because he's singing high notes mm. and mark jumps off the stage and <laughs> runs after the guy <laughs> trying to beat the hell out of him you know uh, i forget how that all played out you know a lot of that stuff is kind of a blur um and um the same thing was happening to raven right same thing because testament you know chuck billy was kind of would do kind of high and low so they yeah. were kind of on the edge of death metal but raven and realm weren't weren't part of that thing <laughs> right um and I remember, uh, you know, John from, from Raven also getting really, really pissed because he was getting stuff thrown at him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not, not cool, by the way, you know, because, you know, when you look at it back at it in retrospect, who cares if it's high or low or whatever? Mm-hmm. You know, it's all part of the same brotherhood of metal in my mind. So, I mean, in, in, but in retrospect, when I look back on all that, I mean, that, that's really kind of one of the reasons why it didn't really move forward because you saw all these heavy kind of like uh, it's really kind of the beginning of what we call like the new metal scene if you want to call it that yep. um, and I always thought of us as being a little bit more musical than a lot of that stuff so we weren't really necessarily worried about being the heaviest or the fastest or the darkest we yep. were really kind of just trying to do something else we were trying I'm to look zoning, I'm zoning in around this time as well about 91 there is a left turn there's a massive left turn roadrunner there's a um, uh, I was just speaking to Gary Levermore, as I was saying, so he was third mind. They got uh, a partnership deal with Rotor in 91. There's also an imprint, which is like a dance label as well, in 91, in the UK at least. So, But the thing is, these things happen before the Black Album and Nevermind, which is what I'm considering in my head. must have been some sort of catalyst for the industry to make him go, shit, let's get some alt-rock, let's get some, let's get some industrial in there. So 
but everything before then, as you say, it was death metal. That was the direction they were going until a year later after Suicidey. It, it was just a weird left turn and started getting out different things. Yeah. I mean, I think that the impact of like the Nirvana sound, I think that to me that that seemed to be kind of at least in, in the general popular music sense, that was kind of a pivotal point. Yeah. Um, I mean, and and I think there was a perceptible change in the crowds too, and that that was one thing that maybe why I really didn't go back to doing it because, mm. you know, I would, you know, with my friends, we would go and hang out to, in clubs here in Milwaukee and we'd go to like punk shows and metal shows and yeah. the energy was very energetic and powerful. Uh, and people would like mosh and slam dance or stage dive or whatever, but it was, mm-hmm. it was communal and it was friendly and it was fun loving. And, you know, and somebody would fall down and we'd pick them up and oh, yeah. hug them and, and keep thrashing or whatever. Uh, and then the death metal crowd came around. And I remember going to a suicidal tendency show, right? And mm. the big circle is going and I'm like, fuck yeah, let's do it. And then all of a sudden there's this group of people in there that are intentional instigators, basically. Yeah, like, yeah. Knocked on my ass and trampled at that show. And it kind of put this sour taste in my mouth. I never really kind of wanted to go back to that. And I felt this, there was this like negative upswelling in the music yeah, yeah. that I really didn't like, you know, and I'm not talking about like evil. It just felt, um, it felt like metal was becoming fractionalized to me. You know, there was, kind of like, yeah, yeah. yeah, there, there was the, the growlers and then there were the singers. Right. And unfortunately yeah. we had a singer and, and a lot, and the growling people fans didn't like the singing. You know, mm. it really was kind That's of interesting. Thick. I've never heard like an anecdote like that, especially for that time. Obviously, I knew that the Florida death metal scene was really in its swing, especially when it's associated with Roadrunner with um, bands like I, I don't think Death did one with Roadrunner until '95. But obviously, there's a lot of Roadrunner bands that did the death metal thing, and right. I always considered it like a thing that happened. I never considered it a fraction, a fractioning, uh, sorry, a fractioning um, force. You know. well, oh, look at what happened to Pantera, right? If you listen to like the first Pantera record, you know, they're singing on that first record. <laughs> mm. And then all of a sudden it's like, wait, people don't like people with long hair. I'll shave it all off. People don't like, like people singing high, fine, oh, growl and scream. And, and I would see that, at, you know, and we had the good fortune of playing with Pantera a number of times uh, and kind of saw that energy that they brought, you know, and yeah, yeah. They, were, they were realizing, I think, the change uh, it was get, it was getting more brutal, basically, is really what you mm. know. And it wasn't really about the musicianship of it; it's, it was about that that energy. Um, and they tried to exemplify it in their music, you know. But you know, I think what what Roadrunner was doing is because of people like Monty, right? And so Monty, totally. the person that would go to the shows, and when you're at a show, you, you see like how the crowd reacts to a band. Mm-hmm. And at that point in history, there was that swing going on where people were like deciding, hey, I'm like all heavy mm-hmm. and, and screw all that like power metal pansy music or whatever, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. And they were seeing that the crowd was into that. And so they were tapping in and why they, and the same reason why they signed us based on that videotape, yeah. I think, is because they wanted to see that the audience had that energy. There was a response to what, they, what you were putting out. Right, because they totally. knew that that's, that's where, that, that is tapping into where it's going. You know, and when you look at, um, you know, I think back to like some of the old shows that I would go to, like, I I remember seeing Slayer on their first or second tour or something playing in Milwaukee and we're and they're playing at a pub basically, you know, or corner bar kind of place. And Mm -hmm. there's like 20, 30 people. Right. And I'm like, but yeah, but these people are 
mad enthusiastic. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's the kind of thing they're tapping into. So I think what Monty was seeing was that and how people react to those things, and that's where the money is in the long run. It's the angle. It's the angle. A lot of it is about the angle. Um, you see that the energy. You see what they're putting out. You see what the crowd are doing and what they're responding to. And I think that, that informs that, that first 10 years especially. Well, you know, it, it, you're also seeing, you know, the quality of musicianship, the, the quality of writing, mm. uh, intensity of performance, you know, the sincerity of the musicians. I mean, yeah. and I think that's a, that's a piece that maybe a lot of people miss is like, you know, a lot of people can play, but not everybody puts the same, you know, I guess emotional content or uh, they don't really deliver their soul through their music or whatever, whatever that piece, mm. that magical aspect is. And I know from seeing Slayer back then that there was a magic, you know, there was mm. something special about it. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, any, and anybody who's kind of in tune to music picks up on that pretty, pretty darn quickly. And it yeah. just always blows me away. You know, we, we got to play with so many really notable bands over the years. Um, you know, you, you pick up on that vibe, you know, it's like I was saying about the Ellen Rigby cover. It's just vibe. You can tell, you can tell this is a fun band. You can tell. I've got four more questions, man. Are you good for time? Is yeah, I'm good. I'm good. No worries. <clears throat> let's, bring, let's bring this ship in. <laughs> yeah, before I start playing more guitar here. This is a daft question, but I can't find much on this guy with relation to Roadrunner. So Don K was given a special thanks on the Suicide liner notes. I was wondering if you knew why. Oh, man. If you had asked me that you know, 25 years ago, I might be able to answer it, but there, yeah. there was a reason I'm sure yeah. uh, that may, I, I'm going to be real Frank. I don't remember. That's cool. Yeah. I, I don't remember what the, Maybe, what the he, he might've given you a good review in Kerrang or something like that. And that yeah, pro- probably, probably. Yeah, yeah. So we were always pretty good at like, if people gave us very positive write-ups or played us on the radio or whatever, we were very sure to thank them. Um, yeah. Um, this is kind of the, the big question, I guess. Um, and then the last two are kind of silly questions. Uh, what would you have done differently reflecting on, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, realm still going in that you're still acting, you're still talking about it and there's still things happening there and you're still getting, again, I, I don't want to be part of that pressure to do more things, but on the, that road on a stint um, and what you might consider the, the conventional life cycle of the band as it was, what would you have done differently? Well, um, you know, in retrospect, I think we would have been intelligent to maybe wait just a little bit before signing a record deal. Um, I think that, um, you know, if Roadrunner picked up on the fact that Eleanor Rigby was a thing, maybe somebody else would have too. I don't, I don't know. I mean, frankly, uh, maybe negotiated better terms, but it sounds like maybe we, you know, maybe we didn't get as much money up front as some bands, but we got some of the publishing, you know. Um, yeah, that's very unique in my research that you've got um, something like that. You know, but don't don't like. I'm not quite. You don't try it. You know, yeah. because I, I'm not like fully remembering all the aspects of it either. You know. Yeah. Um, I guess the other thing I I I, I would have said is I think that you know one thing that always seemed to kind of hamper us a little bit was uh, we felt musically that things were we're on fire. You know, I think, mm. you know, as far as guitars and drums, I mean, we were always like, man, this is, you know, top notch stuff. Yeah. And we struggled with our, our first singer. 
Uh, we had, you know, our moments with, with Mark too. And, and we were aware of the fact that the, that metal was changing mm. and we're also kind of starting to get on Mark's case. And I was maybe a little bit guilty of this is like pushing him too hard to kind of change how he was doing things. Right. Um, really pushing him away from his natural style. And in retrospect, I think <clears throat> that was foolish of me, you know, frankly, mm. because people have a style and you, you should take that style and run with it. You shouldn't, you shouldn't tell King diamond to sing low because everybody else is singing low. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, and that, that's kind of what I was doing at the time. And I, I, at the time I thought, you know, if we only had a different singer, right. Mm. And then, now here's a lovely bit of that is when realm was done, you know, and you know, uh, Mark left the band and Mike left the band. Uh, we were like, man, what the hell, what are, what are we going to do now? You know, it, it's like our, our brotherhood is broken <laughs> and, um, you know, I kept hitting up uh, Butto from Last Crack. You know, I just yeah, kept yeah. bugging him, and and I finally I sent him a a, a tape that we had recorded. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some people would think of it as the unfinished third record, but it, you know, really it was a demo. And mm-hmm. he he dug it. And he came in and he auditioned for us by coming into the studio and singing his ideas over the tracks. Now I have cool. I have recordings of that, and mixes of that, by the way, but. Um, <laughs> um, you know, we ended up getting him in the band and found this other phenomenal drummer, uh, Brian Reitinger, to play with us. And we formed a band called White Fear Chain. Yeah. And, and I'll be real frank. You know, I, I gave up on that project too soon, too. Mm-hmm. And you got to keep in mind, perspective-wise, at the time, um, I was like working on two bachelor's degrees at the same time and then straight into a master's degree while I'm doing yeah. all this. And it just didn't seem like that important to me to kind of move forward. I, I, I felt like I needed to cut myself free mm. and, you know, maybe that was foolish of me. I should, I should have stuck with that project because I listened to those recordings and the songs that we wrote Yeah, we took that energy and power of realm and married it with what I would call um, maybe a precursor to some of the new metal kind of style. I yeah. think, that, I think that band, I mean, I think the material we wrote in that band, um, I love the realm stuff, uh, but I think the white fear chain stuff in many ways is far, far superior. And I think it's almost criminal that that stuff didn't go anywhere. <laughs> um, and so I guess in retrospect, I would have, I should have stuck with it because I was still working with Paul. I was still working with Steve, yeah, yeah. but Oh, amazing vocalist. He really is. Um, mm because he's a musician, right? So he, uh, he, he really understands music theory and how to play an instrument. So he brings that into the music. Um, and then, I don't know, such a, such an amazing pool of talent. I, yeah, I look yeah. back on it and go, Oh my God, I was so fortunate to play with these people. These guys are like world-class musicians. Mm. Um, I should have stuck with it, you know, but I, I took, I took a different path and I'm not, I'm not going to regret taking a different path. Oh, sure. But you know, <laughs> I'll, I'll keep, I'll keep, hitting the drum and on behalf of people who already know obviously what you've done but it's never too late man if, if there's anything right it was really interesting reflecting on that footage from last year and obviously I'm speaking specifically about Mark because like fuck me he has not lost it it's so strange there's so many bands that sort of like just pick up guitars after 30 years and it's sort of like okay we're about um, 50 kilograms heavier and we're we're gonna detune it it's like didn't get that from that um, Hall of Fame show man and it's it's just, it's just good. I'd, I'd love it if there was a, ba- I'd love it if there was a band of 60, 65 year olds that had formed yesterday. They didn't know each other. They were just like down, down the pub 
And I'd love to see a band just come together completely out of the blue and just blow the socks off. Because it, it's there. It's just that I think there's a mentality around people that age who are just like, oh, I'm past it. It's like, nah, man. This is, you won't, in a thousand years, they'll look back and go, oh, I was 65. Uh, it doesn't really, it, it doesn't, didn't matter. Right. No, well, I see that really clearly now at this, you know, at this age, but I, I can't believe that, you know, I, I kind of gave up on it back in the 90s because I, you know, hey, I'm, I'm going to be like 30. So, you know, hey, it's time to give this, this foolishness up and, and move on mm. to a career or whatever. Um, but I was I, I was happy with what I was doing, you know, because I, I, yeah. I, I really it wasn't really, you know, the drive to be famous or anything like that. Uh, we always kind of had this, you know, really just want to play because we enjoyed playing and sure. we yeah. enjoyed playing music with each other, you know, and I think that that's a really important thing too. I mean, cause there's, there's the personality of music um, and some of it extends far beyond the capability of being a musician, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also this work ethic thing too. And, and I, I guess I kind of miss that because we rehearsed so damn much, you know? So, yeah. and I was just looking back at like some video footage that we shot <laughs> just a couple of years ago and looking at the interview footage. Um, mm. So this is kind of weird. So we shot a bunch of footage. We played the show before that award show mm. and I finally got the footage from the video guys and I was kind of mm. through it, and I was listening to everybody's interviews and I was like, wow, you, these guys are really hitting on something. And, and the fact that we, treated realm like a job so you look at a lot of, lot of bands right and, and go, oh you guys rehearse oh yeah we rehearse once a week or every other week or something like that and here's realm we're rehearsing like four or five nights a week and then playing on the weekends and we all like had full-time jobs or things going on and i'm like oh my god i mean it's insane that we would rehearse that much you know mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it really is what it's the work ethic aspect of it it wasn't that we were fantastic musicians that just we worked really hard at being tight. We worked really hard at writing the riffs. We, um, and it was not just the work of it, but it was the, it was the brotherhood. It really was, you know, the camaraderie of it all. It, when you were talking earlier about the magic and the energy and, and things that labels will be looking for in a band, I think the way I kind of see it is like metalheads, especially, yeah, we can spot authenticity or we can spot inauthenticity from a fucking mile off. And right. I think one of the things that Realm did was they managed to access the, the authenticity really easily because all the overheads were already out of the way. You'd already practiced five nights a week. You already knew each other. You didn't have to worry about certain nuances on stage. You could just thrash out. And I think that's part of it. I think I mean, we're, we're, in the, we're in the same airport and we're, we're, we're landing on different runways. Yeah, yeah, that's a nice, nice analogy. I mean, but certainly I had this this confidence, you know, I would step on stage with these guys and we were, we would hit so tight. Mm. You know, I think we would play places and we'd be so damn loud and damn tight. We'd shock shock people, you know, and I I, I saw other bands do that too. And the one I think that was probably most profound that way was probably Pantera, you know, Mm. Um, because they had that same level of like shocking tightness and articulation Combine that with, you know, it, we had a great live sound man, Brian Blank, who mm. it, we'd be in like venues playing with other bands and their mix mm. would sound like mud. We'd step mm. up there and it would sound crystal clear, powerful, and articulate, you know, and yeah, yeah. that's really important, you know, and, and what's I he doing these days? Series. What's that? 
What's he doing these days, Ryan? He's uh, six feet underground, I believe. <laughs> no, he, yeah, he passed away. Yeah, so he, he passed away a number of years ago, um, you know, and it really made us all sad, you know, because mm. he was a dear, dear friend. And we never played, I think we played one live show the whole time in Rome. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, that's not true. It was maybe a, one week in New York, we played with a different sound man, but every show that we played, Brian mixed every yeah, single yeah. show. And he was like the fifth member, you know, he, yeah. uh, having him behind the board, we knew that we would have a, a amazing, yeah, right out from, yeah. yeah, amazing mix. We're unsung um, heroes. That's the problem was live engineers. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, it floors me to this day. I go out and see live music now. And I think there's both from the musicians and the sound men and the sound systems, how is it that we're in this modern era with all this technology and you go see bands and it sounds like crap? I mean, real frankly, the mixes are horrible, you know, because yeah. people don't know how to mix. Right. And, and mm-hmm. really what it is, it's a lot of overprocessing and a lot of bad analog digital conversions and yeah. et cetera. But uh, I don't think people have the ear anymore. They just think if it's loud and distorted, it's good or whatever. But the truth mm-hmm. is um, we weren't really that distorted. You know, we were loud. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and that tone. It, right, right. Well, thank you very much. You know, uh, I think that we, we took a lot of time to tweak our sounds, make yeah. sure that all the instruments mesh together just naturally. Mm. Uh, you know, I had, you know, it's funny, I had a conversation with Mark uh, just a couple of days ago and uh, to tell me about this interview, basically. <laughs> and um, we were talking about, you know, kind of reflecting on the shows that we did. And Mark said he, he was blown away because he forgot how loud we played and we forgot, <laughs> uh, even though we were toned down. Uh, and back in the day, you know, we really didn't rely on monitors so much. We would sure. set up our own stage mix. We would like crisscross cabinets on stage so I could hear Paul and Paul could hear me and we'd have a mm-hmm. bass cab on the other side. So all we really needed in the monitors was mm-hmm. the vocals. Mm-hmm. And now in the modern era, you know, we got like in the ears and everybody gets their own mix. And I'll tell you what, that's, that's almost more confusing to me, <laughs> you know, because I, I was so reliant on just stage sound in front of house and yep. feeling it on the stage. And now you've got all this technology in the mix and something, I feel like something is lost in, in, in the process of it. I think it's all part of this. Remember I was saying the overhead when you're trying to achieve the authenticity, because there's some bands of jump mix, which are, as you say, just, just the wedges, just this, just that. Some of them have gone, actually turn the wedges off. I'll be all right. And there's some which are, staring daggers at you because their in-ear mix isn't quite right and it's fucked the whole show up and it's like, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Course, we, uh, we, were ne- we were never one of those bands, you know, so we, yeah. we'd walk into these tiny little clubs and um, we would take yeah, it, yeah. like practice PA and rock yeah. the hell out of it, <laughs> you know, yeah. and not really worried about the monitor mix, you know, <laughs> we, we were good, you know, whatever we could, you know, if we could pull it off at rehearsal with just Mark coming through a couple of wedges, you know, hey, that's all we need on stage too, frankly. Champion. Yeah. Um, okay. We're near to Halloween. Yes. Have you seen? Have you ever seen a ghost? That's an interesting story. I'm going to say, have I seen a ghost? No. Have maybe perceived one? Okay. So any any kind of paranormal experiences? I'm going to. We have strange. I'll tell you what. I think you know, like my wife sometimes is a straight up clairvoyant. Um, right. We have these really weird things that happen to us. So here's here's a really 
this is, uh, I don't know what you would call this, right? So we're driving around in the car a couple of weeks ago. We're, we're like out shopping for groceries or whatnot. Yeah. And all of a sudden, Terry kicks in to singing um, one of the songs from the Grease soundtrack, right? And um, I forget which one it is, but, you know, one of the one of the big hits from that. And just goofing around. And really what she was doing is poking fun at me. Mm. Then we walk into the grocery store and actually we went into the liquor store part of it to get our favorite beer. And, okay. <laughs> and then all of a sudden on the sound system, mm-hmm. that exact song. Yep. Yep. Okay. So maybe that's not a paranormal experience, but I, I feel like yeah. uh, both she and I sometimes tap into like these weird things like that. Yep. Uh, and we get a lot of, I'll tell you a lot of weird paranormal stuff happened when Paul was passing away. Like, oh, man. uh, in really, really weird kind of ways, you know. So like, he he was almost passing. So he was almost passing away, and, and Terry had this thought in her head. She goes, "You need to call Paul right now." And I'm like, "Why?" And she says, "I just call him." Mm. And it turned out his daughter was trying to get married before he passed away. Right. So we rushed over and picked him up, drove him down to the courthouse so they could do the ceremony. He was like barely able to function at that point. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was all kind of on intuition. You know, so if you want to call that paranormal. Yeah, I do. That was great. And that was crazy. I'll, I'll even throw one more at you that's even stranger. Because when you look at when you look at um, the Endless War album and uh, the song Eminence, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, Eminence is, um, right? <laughs> that, the one that starts like that. Uh, that was based on a dream that Paul had. So Paul, yeah. when he was younger, really kind of... Um, let's say experimented with uh, controlled substances to an extreme degree, you know, and we're talking as a teenager, right? Um, And I think one night he, he took a couple too many hits of acid, (laughs) came home and uh, I think fell asleep in the chair or something and woke up and the TV's on and like the televangelist is on the screen. And he had this like dream basically that he was transported to the scene of the crucifixion of Christ, right? This is his dream. And he kept hearing this loud pounding noise yeah. He didn't know what it was, and he got closer and closer to it, and it, it turned out it was the hammering of the nails into Christ, you know. This is right. like his LSD-inspired dream. Yeah, yeah. He was telling us about it. We're all getting chills listening to the yeah, story. Yeah. And so we wrote the words for Eminence and then wrote the music. It's, and, that is just metal as fuck, by the way. <laughs> you know, yeah, the, yeah, it totally is. And, and unfortunately, a lot of people lo- would look at that and go, oh, my God, these guys are like a Jesus band. <laughs> <laughs> you know, totally, totally not the case. I mean, we we had positivity to our music. I think, mm-hmm. right? Um, instead of like preaching evil, we tried to preach positivity, but it wasn't really uh, to tell anybody how to be. You know, it was yeah, really. Yeah. Um, but we had a lot of weird experiences like that. Like that frankly, you know. Um, yeah, it was um, it was my nan's birthday the other day, and she passed away twelve years ago. My dad came up uh, to see me. <clears throat> I think he was putting flowers on the grave. He was coming past my house. And uh, he said, so weird. Yeah, I was just pulling up outside the house. And then the song that she had at her funeral just came on the radio. Completely out of the blue. So a similar kind of experience. Right. Yeah. And stra- strangely, you know, when Paul's wife was, pa- you know, Paul's wife passed away too. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, she liked that one uh, song. Uh, she talks to angels. I forget what band does it. Yeah. Uh, Black Crows or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and every time we would hear that song, we would think of Lori, right? You know, so because she loved that song. And then uh, one day, Terry and I, there's another paranormal experience, totally. Uh, Terry's like, man, I don't know why I can't get this song out of my head. Two seconds later, I get a text on my phone from Paul. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dear friends, my wife has passed away. For fuck's sake. 
Yeah. So maybe, so I'm not getting as much of the paranormal as my wife is, but I, I feel I've, I've been around kind of that thing, you know, what does she do for a living? Cause whatever it is, she needs to quit and go to Stonehenge or something. <laughs> right. Right. Um, what does she do for a living? She's an acupuncturist by trade. Right. Um, right. Which is an intuitive, it's an intuitive healing art, right? So she's, yeah, she's dialed into that, 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 I was going to say realm, you know, but I'm pumped. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there, there's, so, there's something to it, and, and the fact that uh, I think, you know, I noticed that when we did get back together and start playing with each other again, that there was a certain, like, magic that you can't really explain just before, because of the brotherhood that we have, yeah, and yeah. Uh, we all plug in, play together, and there's, like, this thing. Um, mm. it, it's, it's actually so, so tangibly weird, I can't even explain it to you. Like the, <laughs> whatever it is, you know, we, we plug in, and the magic is still there. Yeah. Last, last question. Sure. Then then you can go and have your lunch. Um, (laughs) Anything you want to plug or promote? Anything I want to plug or promote? Um, Not really. (laughs) Um, You know, uh, don't share too much on Facebook. I don't know. Um, What what do I want to plug or promote? Well, I guess, you know, we do have a couple shows lined up, you know, they were supposed to happen this past April and obviously Mm. with the pandemic, uh, they got moved forward, so uh, we we are scheduled to play the Keep It True Festival at some point in Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what the new revised date is. It's either spring of 2021 or maybe fall of 21, or maybe mm-hmm. we're going all the way to 22 now for a show. Uh, and awesome. we have a local show planned, too. So our, our hope is we, we play these two shows, and probably that's it for us. You know, I, I don't really see us moving forward, but... We'll see. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. I, I do have, you know, a bunch of um, recordings that I would like to kind of polish up and put out there just for the sake of the fans sure, and ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we also have um, a bunch of video footage and I've just started plowing through it and looking at it. And my hope is that maybe we can uh, pull that together and maybe do some sort of documentary or live dvd combo kind of thing hey man if you like the state of this part two of roadrunner um the history of roadrunner hit me up i'll happily do uh, <laughs> i'll happily do a great amateur version of realm uh, the story of realm hey right on hey man last actually no one so one which i completely missed so tony um where's where's his last name tony Seely. yes what's, what's he doing now is he all right He's also passed away. Okay, I'm going to stop asking, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that, that's kind of the sad thing. We had a, a whole, you know, Paul passed away, his wife passed away, our sound man passed away, our merch guy passed, mm. passed away, Tony passed away, and, and, you know, Eric Greif is not, you know, he's been, like, having his health issues. And, yeah. Um, we almost lost Steve. You know, Steve had a bout with cancer, and mm. I'll tell you what, that really kind of freaked me out quite a bit. Yeah. And uh, I thought we were going to lose him. I, I'm so thankful that we didn't. Mm. So it's, it's, it's critically important. Well, it, you obviously know this, but, you know, you need to record all this stuff. You need to make sure everyone's telling the stories. Right. Well, I, I suppose if we were maybe a little more popular, more video footage would exist and more uh, articles would exist. But, you know, I'm not disappointed with the legacy of it. You know, I think sure. it has it has uh, adequate impact for, for me, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. And it's not really the main impetus of my life these days. Mm. Um, but hey, you know. Yeah. yeah. Well, I guess that was fucking incredible. I was too, sorry, I didn't mean to take two hours, but 
We're, we're going to go and down rabbit holes, man. I, ten, I, I tend to get a little bit chatty because, you know, I kind of tend to speak for a living, so. Hey, man, it's cool. It's very cool. Um, I don't know what else to say. This, uh, hopefully, hopefully, I'll be able to get this out before um, Halloween and make the, the spooky stuff more poignant. But um, right, no, um, I, I, I really appreciate it. Like when you were, when you were contacting me uh, uh, through Facebook, you were talking about Satan. And, you know, I, I mentioned to you that, like, you know, growing up, right, you know, because I was totally influenced by that new wave of British heavy metal, you know, yeah, Raven and Tank and, you know, Maiden and all those bands. And, uh, and and I was like, you know, I had the guitar on, right? So I thought Satan, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember. Uh... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, not that I sat and really learned the stuff, but, you know. I'll that, make sure they, I'm, I'm due to go back to them and ask them some more questions, basically, because they've been corresponding by email. Um, I was hoping to take them out for a pint, but obviously lockdown happens because they're not too far from me. They're only about an hour up the road. Um, but I'll, I'll make sure I'll drop your name in and see if they. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure if they know who I am or anything. Like oh, that. Yeah, but I'm sure, you know, I, sure they'd but, appreciate it. That's all. Yeah, I, I really, really love that that first uh, that first record. Cool. Yeah. And I yeah I I still listen to it from time to time. You know. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I'll be doing an episode on them specifically once I get some more questions and answers out of them so uh, hopefully it'll be interesting to see what the parallels are between your road or experience and their road or experience and all that shit yeah i mean i suppose i could be more bitter about it but i have really no reason to <laughs> so it, it's interesting like i said i don't i think you, you've got the right mindset because it is a business at the end of the day and it is and the, the thing that i'm realizing is i'm, I'm talking about road runner because they seem to have a narrative. They seem to have, there is a, there is a bookend to this, well not a bookend, but there's a start, middle and end. Usually there's labels that go and burn out. There's monoliths that have no character. And then you've got Roadrunner in the middle that has a somewhat self-contained narrative, which I think is worth telling. And then as I was saying earlier, it, there's also aspects of it that speak to how it was then, what labels do then and what they do now. And I think the thing, the commonality between the whole thing is it's a few people scrambling to make things work that's what this entire industry is built on so no point being bitter about it because the fact that we're sat here now talking to each other about a band from like 30 32 yeah 35 years ago it's such a delicate thread it's such a delicate pillar upon which this conversation is structured so you know it's it's there's only so much to be mad about i think no i i agree And, and you know and ultimately we're really looking at an art form And any way that it's preserved into the future, I think is fantastic. I think um, clearly the scene has changed a lot. I mean, some some things are common, but some things are a lot different. Um, But I think there was an integrity back then because we hadn't really quite crossed into the digital era. Mm. And and, um, there was some magic happening, you know, and and the way that it was captured was different back then. It was a whole different uh, kind of vibe. But it makes me happy to see that um, there's still a lot of really cool music coming out. Um, totally. That heavy music is still vibrant. Mm-hmm. Uh, it might not be as top selling as hip hop, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, hey, but whatever, you know what? Metal fans are very, very, very loyal. Yeah. Um, and I think any any fractions that there were in metal, you know, like I, I identified like the death metal, you know, power metal kind of fracture or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I don't see I don't see it that way anymore. I see it all as mm-hmm. brotherhood, and I think that a lot of people feel that way. I think that. The, the scene has grown up. So I noticed yeah. that when we did our reunion show, everybody grew up and everybody became 
you know, something else, but we still have that underpinning that kind of keeps us all together. Totally. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, and it shapes our lives in, in a weird way. So I think that, that uh, metal fans um, are forward thinking kind of people it's just in, yeah, in totally. general, you know? Yeah. So. yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure in the last two hours, I've told you that I'm going to send you some stuff based on questions I've asked and things like that. And I will do that. And I'm about to ask you some SharePoint questions as well. So. <laughs> oh, so you, you, you saw my SharePoint videos. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I work with SharePoint fairly often. So I'm, I'm, I'm bound to ask you some stuff. I can hear my 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 daughter screaming, <laughs> and I think she's about to go to bed. So I'm gonna I'm gonna close this out, man. Um, thanks again, Zachas. That was incredible. Um, I can't guarantee a lot of viewership, but they will be in. It'll be on something forever, and the, the story will be recorded forever. Oh, I, I appreciate it. Um, thank you for inviting me, and it was a pleasure speaking with you. And uh, you know what? Uh, at some point, maybe uh, we should connect up and I can share some of those like weird, obscure tracks with you. That Definitely. If, if, if you've got, if you have anything that you just come across that might be worth taking a picture and just sending to me, but by all means, let's, let's do it. Yeah. 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 I have, I have a lot of fantastic archive stuff to, you know, someday I'll, I'm, I'm actually working on trying to redes- redesign the, the band website. I haven't touched it in about 20 years. I was going to say, I emailed that, that site first and I didn't get anything back. That's why I thought, I'll try the Facebook. Yeah, you know what? I I, uh, I don't really check that email account. Maybe that maybe I should. Maybe I should check it. But um, yeah, I, I am working on a site redesign just to kind of chronicle things. You know? Thank you, and you should get to your daughter. Yeah, I'll do my sending.